0: Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. And if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read verses 15 to 22. And God's Word says, And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, This is the blood of the testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your precious word. Lord, we thank you for how you're you're blessing our church, how you're providing for our church. Lord, be with us this morning. Uh, be with the message this morning, Lord. Please just uh, help me be that conduit, Lord. Flow your message through me. Uh, just get me out of the way, Lord. Help me be what you'd have us to have this morning, Lord. Help me to the, the skip over things by notes that you don't want us to have this morning, Lord, and give me the words to add uh, the things you do want us to have in this message this morning, Lord. Just guide all parts of it, Lord Jesus, and, and be with our message this morning. Help us get what you want us to get out of your word this morning, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So title of our, our message this morning is Death, Blood, and Redemption. And if you haven't noticed by the song service yet, there's a certain theme uh, in our, our service this morning. That theme is the blood of Christ or the blood of Jesus. Uh, uh, for where will we be without the blood of Christ and the blood of Jesus? If you remember last week, we left off in chapter 9 at verse 14. As a writer, what gave us the essential, most important difference between the Old and New Covenants. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more shall the blood of Christ, our death, blood, and redemption, Uh, While the Old Covenant tabernacle existed to permit a sinful people uh, to remain in fellowship within the nation of Israel, the New Covenant goes a whole lot farther than that. The New Covenant restores fellowship between mankind and God. uh, While the Old Covenant ensured that Israel could continue to receive earthly blessings in the land, the New Covenant guarantees eternal blessings in the kingdom. Uh, The tabernacle sacrifices, cleanse the body, but the new covenant tabernacle cleanses the soul and the conscience. Uh, With what the writer now, he's he's zeroing down on this change in the covenants in this passage in Hebrews chapter 9. He zeroes in, and he's talking about the blood. If we are saved, we are in a covenant with the living God. Pause and think about that for a moment. If we're saved, we're in a covenant with the living God. But it's all through the blood. It's all brought about through the blood of Christ. Uh, this covenant with the Lord, he gave, uh, he gave that old covenant with the Lord in Israel. But this new covenant, it's different. It's better. It's superior because it is the blood of Christ that backs up this new covenant. Not the blood of goats and of calves, but it's the blood of Christ. We go to verse 15 now. It says, And for this cause, for this cause, he is the mediator of the new testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance the writer begins with for this cause Uh, that phrase directs our attention back to the previous passage one we talked about last week Uh, because the old covenant tabernacle and the old covenant tabernacle service and priests who served in that place could Could not cleanse our our conscience, could not cleanse our soul, but it could point to something to come that could. And that something that to come was better, that something that to come was was new. And we needed that better. We needed that new. We needed that superior uh, person to come. So for this cause, Christ became a mediator for a new covenant. Uh, The writer is answering a question that perhaps some in his audience or some in Israel might have been asking. And that question could have been, why would God have replaced the old covenant? The covenant he created for Israel. Why would he need to replace that? What, why, why would he need to do that? Why was, what was wrong with the old covenant? And an answer would be because the old covenant does not address the fundamental problem of sin separating us from, from heaven, from God. That sin separates us. The old covenant covered it appeased it but it did not forgive it it did not uh, uh, break that barrier of separation between us and God but the one to come the one of the new covenant Jesus Christ he brought in that better priesthood that better sacrifice in the better tabernacle and that leads us to another question we say it's better we say it's superior but what makes it better what makes it better in the second half of verse 15, the writer answers that question, what makes the new covenant better? And the answer begins with a death. The new covenant is better because it provided a sacrifice to pay for all the sins committed under the first covenant. The new covenant actually wiped away all the sin debt that Israel had racked up under the old covenant. It's like if someone came along and and said, you have a bunch of credit card debt, he goes, I'm going to pay off your credit cards, I'm going to pay off your house, I'm going to pay all your medical bills, I'm going to pay your car off, any other debt you have, I'm paying it all off, and he pays it all off at once. We'd think, well, that's a pretty nice guy. You know, we, We'd really like that guy. That would be better than us having to keep worrying about paying it ourselves. That would be better, that would be superior. So now let's look carefully at the second part of verse 15. That by means of death, For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions. The writer says that Christ became a mediator of a new covenant so that by death he could redeem the transgressions. By his death he could bring redemption. Now the word redemption in that verse means just to pay a ransom, redeemed us. He paid that ransom for us, and transgressions is is our sins. So the sins of Israel under the Old Covenant were a debt that was owed to God that required a payment. And the wages of sin, we know, are death, so a human death was required, but not just any human death. The Old Covenant tabernacle service never called for human sacrifice, Uh, The Old Covenant had no means then to repay the sin debt required by the law. Furthermore, if even a human sacrifice were to take place, there would be no perfect human that could qualify as that sinless sacrifice. So something had to change. Something had to come along to change that. So the Old Covenant sacrifices could only cleanse the body and not the soul. Uh, They eventually needed to be replaced with something new something better, something superior, something that could pay that sin debt, could pay that ransom, could be that redemption that man needed. Man needed a sacrifice capable of paying the ransom that was owed to God. Praise the Lord, the new covenant offers a sacrifice capable of paying the ransom that is owed for all who are condemned by their sin under the old covenant. And that sacrifice, of course, was Christ himself on the cross. Remember, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And at Jesus' death, the new covenant was established. And by his death, a payment is offered and made to satisfy uh, the requirements of the old covenant. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. By that gift, we can have redemption. This is the meaning of Christ's words when he declared he came to fulfill the law so that we may enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. Uh, The writer says those who are called into faith by the Father are made part of this new covenant. If you see in verse 15, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now The covenant given to Israel was, now I had to look these words up when I was studying, but the, the covenant given to Israel was what was called a parity covenant. That means both sides were obligated. There was a, a pair. Both, both sides were obligated to parts of that covenant, obligated, obligated to perform certain things. But the new covenant is not that kind of covenant. It's what is called a suzerainty covenant, which means the, the greater, it's a covenant granted by the greater to the lesser, and the lesser has no responsibility. Everything is on the greater side. And of course, we know in that covenant who the greater is, and we know who the, the lesser is. We're the lesser in that covenant. And God is the greater. So God is the greater. He's the greater party. He's the granter of that covenant. And we have been called by God into grace by faith, have been granted the blessings of the covenant. Nothing we do to get that. We are granted the blessings of the covenant. Now, the promise of eternal inheritance. Notice the end of verse 15. The writer says that those who are called into the new covenant will receive an eternal inheritance. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Uh, this is easy to understand. The idea is simple. Every human being's eternal future has two possible outcomes. Uh, either we fail to enter the new covenant. We must pay the wages of our sin ourselves for the rest of eternity. We will never pay that debt. We'll spend the rest of eternity paying that debt. or We become become part of the new covenant by faith. And so that Christ's death will pay that sin debt on our behalf. And then we'll be able to share in Christ's inheritance in the kingdom. Uh, The writer of Hebrews has connected the death of Christ on our behalf with us receiving that inheritance. So the death is necessary. And we understand uh, that connection from everyday experience. We understand that in order for us to receive an inheritance, the person that's leaving us the inheritance kind of has to unfortunately, die for us to get that inheritance. We don't just walk up and say, I'm, I'm taking my inheritance today, Grandma, so the house is no longer yours. You can go, you can go live on the street and it's, it's mine. That's not how it worked. Uh, unfortunately, Grandma has to pass away for us to then get our inheritance from Grandma. So in order for us to receive that inheritance, a death is necessary. So when you look at the necessity of the Messiah's death, look at verses 16 to 17. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, when I was uh, trying to explain this, I kind of wrote it out and I got into... Eventually, I, I use a word, and, and when I use that word, I immediately thought of Miss Linda, and I think you'll understand when I get there. Um, but I'm trying to explain... Explain this. I'll, I'll just get into what I, I wrote here. A testament by its very nature requires the death of a testator. And the Greek word translated as testament in our text corresponds very closely to what we think of as a modern day will. And a will does not take effect, uh, again, until the one who made it has died. Until that time, its benefits, its provisions are only promises, and they're promises that, that may come in the future. The writer Hebrews is basically saying that God gave a legacy. He gave an eternal inheritance to Israel in the form of a covenant, or you could say a will. Uh, as with any will, it was only a type of a promissory note until the provider of the will had died. At this point in our passage, no mention is made of who the testator is or of how Christ fills that role in life and death. Wills are not binding until there is a death. Uh, you may be thinking, uh, I don't understand enough, make out a will, it's a good will, I, It's it's that's what I want, but it's not binding until there is a death. Um, I don't have to die in order for it to be a good will, but the good will that you made is not binding until there is a death. The will in itself, it could be a fine, perfectly executed legal document, uh, totally right, but it's not binding until there is a death. Now, ever since the earliest law, and this includes Roman law, as it does as much as our law, the rule on wills is that the will is ambulatory. That's, that's the word I thought of when I read that and wrote it. I'm like, I, for some reason, Miss Linda just popped my mind. Um, I have no idea if that has anything to do with her being a nurse or not, but it just popped in my mind. So, wills, is, uh, wills are ambulatory. Uh, that just means, uh, you say uh, ambulatory, like an ambulatory patient? Yes. Will's walk around with you. Will is ambulatory, means that it, it walks around with the testator. Therefore, it is never solid. It's never definite. It's never certain until the testator dies. Uh, that, that testator could change it. The testator could say, this is my will. You're getting everything. And a few years later, they change it, never mention it to you. The testa- it's not, it's ambulatory. It, 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 it's not certain until the testator dies. The will does not speak until the testator dies. It has no legal effect until the testator dies. The testator can make any sort of changes he wants in that will. Any changes he makes immediately come into effect as long as they are properly executed. And then it replaces anything else that has been previously written. Anything that has been written can be changed totally by the testator anytime he wants to. Anytime he wants to right up to the moment of his death. The will will only speak when the testator is dead. The will will only be binding when the testator is dead. You only get the inheritance when the testator is dead. You have to have a death for a will to speak. And the following quote is from a book I have entitled Law in the Gospel, and the author wrote this. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews bases his entire theological argument on a foundational legal principle. From the days of Roman law to modern Anglo-American common law jurisprudence, the rule has been invariable but customary. A testamentary expression speaks, becomes efficacious not at execution, but on the decease of the testator. The essential distinguishing characteristic of the will is that it has absolutely no effect as a legal instrument until the death of the testator and is revocable until that time. So we see the death of christ was not optional was not optional for us to receive our inheritance jesus had to die jesus sacrificed himself for our sins was essential was an essential precondition for our receiving our eternal inheritance death was not optional no no death of christ no inheritance of eternal life Uh, you cannot get an inheritance until the will speaks the will cannot speak until the testator dies. And Christians, we know, are first and foremost heirs, heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ, Romans eight sixteen to 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, then we also be glorified together. We are heirs. Uh, that testator had to die. There had to be a death. The next thing I want you to notice is not without the blood. Look at verses 18 to 22 in our passage. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. A death was necessary, but also we see without shedding of blood is no remission. Return here to the idea that covenant expressed in verses 15, talked about verse 14. The writer of Hebrews has said that a death was indeed for the redemption of our transgressions under law was needed and but Christ is our mediator he 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 died that death for us he's a mediator of the new covenant uh, he he gave he put us into a position where we are now heirs we're heirs of that possession we we've inherited that eternal life and in confirmation of of the necessity of the blood you look at verse 18 neither the first testament was dedicated without blood and then the end of verse 22 And without shedding the blood is no remission. It's pretty clear the blood of Christ was necessary. God has made more than one covenant with man, but never without the blood. And why? Well, we know the answer. If you want to turn with me to Leviticus 17 and verse 11. Leviticus 17 and verse 11. If I can get there myself. Leviticus 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It's the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Death is always in every word God's judgment on sin. Uh, The sting of death is sin. The shed blood sprinkled upon the altar of the or or, or the person is a proof that a death has been endured and that the penalty of the transgressions for which atonement is being made has been borne. In some cases, we talked about this last week. The hands were laid upon the head of the sacrifice, confessing over it uh, the sins of the people, the sins of the high priest, and laying upon it that, that sin. Then that sin was atoned for. The sacrifice, the shed blood, was put upon the altar. As a pledge, and God accepted that death as a substitute. Now the sins were covered by the blood, and the guilty one was restored to God's favor. Without shedding of blood is no, rem- re- no remission. Hebrews nine twenty two. Not without the blood. Uh, this is the wondrous note that rings throughout all of Scripture. Throughout all of Scripture, Adam and Eve sinned, and they tried to cover themselves, and God. Killed an animal, shed the blood, give them skins to cover them. We have Abel's sacrifice, blood. We have uh, the Song of the Ransom Revelation, blood. Uh, Andrew Murray put it this way God is willing to receive fallen man back again to his fellowship, to admit him to his heart and his love, to make a covenant with him, to give full assurance of all this, but not without blood. Even his own Son, the Almighty and all perfect one, the gift of his eternal love even he could only redeem us us and enter the Father's presence in submission to the words, not without blood. It takes the blood of Jesus. Uh, But praise God, the blood of the Son of God, in which there was a life of the eternal spirit, has been given, and now has wrought us eternal redemption. We are redeemed by the blood. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He indeed died for our sins. He's taken them away. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Life poured out and his blood shedding was a life that had conquered sin and rendered a perfect obedience. The blood shedding as the completion of that life in its surrender to God has made that complete perfect atonement for all man's sins. He put away our sin by his blood with a new covenant is established in which God remembers our sins no more cleanses our hearts by His blood to receive His law, cleans our heart by His blood so the Holy Spirit can come in. It's all by the blood. Now, I've noticed in our passage here four characteristics about the blood. We're going to go over these. Number one, it was royal blood. It was royal blood. It was His own blood, verse 12. He, the King of kings, offered His royal blood for our sins. Uh, number two, it was voluntarily shed blood. He offered himself, verse 14. No one took his life. He voluntarily gave up his life for us, Luke 23:46). Another thing about that blood, it was pure, innocent blood. Without spot, verse 14. And the final thing I noticed, it was sacrificial. He did not die as a martyr, but as a savior. For them, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9 26. So it was royal blood. It was voluntarily shed blood. It was pure, innocent blood. And it was sacrificial blood. F.B. Meyer, a preacher and commentator from the 1800s, wrote this. He said it flowed from his head thorn girt that it might atone for the sins of thought uh, from his hands and his feet fast nailed that it might expiate sins of deed and walk uh, from his side that it might wipe out the sins of our affections as well as us of his deep and fervent love which which could not be confined within the four chambers of his heart but must find vent and falling on the earth I thought that was incredible how he explained that Uh, It was in this blood of the eternal covenant that God brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. The blood had so atoned for our sin and made an end of sin that in its power, Christ was raised again. It became the power of a new life in him, became the power of new life in us. With that blood, he opened the way into the holiest of holies for us. He opened the way into our hearts for himself by that blood, not without the blood. In earth, in heaven, in each moment of our lives, in each thought and act of worship, these words reign supreme, not without the blood. There can be no fellowship with God, but in the blood and in the death of His blessed Son. Not without the blood. Praise His name, though. In that blood, there's access to fellowship, access to life, access to blessedness, access to a nearness access to his love that passes all understanding, but it's all through the blood. Another commentator wrote this, There is not a word in Scripture in which all theology is so easily summed up. All that Scripture teaches of sin and death, of the incarnation and the love of Christ, of redemption and salvation, of sin and death conquered, of heaven opened and the Spirit poured out, of the new covenant blessings, of a perfect conscience, of a clean heart, of access to God, of power to serve God, of personal attachment to Jesus, and of the joy of eternity. All that Scripture teaches in all these things has its root and its fruit in this alone, the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. It is through the blood. Another preacher put it this way, one drop of that blood sprinkled out of the sanctuary of the heart changes the whole heart, perfects the conscience, sanctifies the soul, makes the garments clean and white so that we are meet for fellowship with God, ready and able to serve and live in His love. It is by the blood. To be sprinkled with blood, to have the living, cleansing, operating power of His blood, the blood of Jesus in our heart, this prepares us to serve Him. This enables us to serve God, but not in oldness of the letter, but in newness of the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about this passage. There is no truth more plain than this in the whole of the Old Testament, and it must have within it a very weighty lesson to our souls. There are some who cannot endure the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement. Let them beware lest they be casting away the very soul and essence of the gospel. It is evident that the sacrifice of Christ was intended to give ease to the conscience, for we read that the blood of bulls and of goats could not do that. I fail to see how any doctrine of atonement except the doctrine of the vicarious sacrifice of Christ can give ease to the guilty conscience. Christ, in my stead, suffering the penalty of my sin. That pacifies my conscience, but nothing else does. Without shedding of blood is no remission. All through the blood of Christ. Without the blood. Without blood, no remission. Without the blood of Christ, no remission. Without the blood of Christ, no redemption. Without the blood of Christ, no salvation. Our sins are just too ugly. They're too deep. They're too filthy. Our sins are too large. We're too infested with our sins. We're just so sinful. We are just such horrible sinners that nothing but the blood of Jesus could ever set us free. Blood must atone for us. Blood must buy us. Blood must cleanse us. In other words, life must be shed to redeem us, and such life as poured out from the very being of the Son of God. I'm going to wrap things up this morning. As a year's sin of the nation uh, was borne away into the desert by that scapegoat, put away, so was the whole sin of all of mankind centered on the head of Christ. He was made sin. Uh, Who knew no sin, he was made sin for us. Jesus drew uh, to himself and assumed all the sin of mankind. All man's sins, all my sins, all your sins was put on him. He was the propitiation or the satisfaction for the sin of the whole world. Each individual sinner must then individually and personally lay claim to that wonderful provision made for him. Confession of sin must be made. Realization that we are sinners must take place. Repentance or turning to the Lord must be done because the Lamb of God has borne away our sins and the sins of the world. The payment has been made. The gift of salvation has been offered. It is up to the sinner to accept or to reject that free gift of salvation. Now, since the penalty for sin is death, then nothing but death by the shedding of blood can atone for our sin. We cannot enter into God's presence by self-effort. Uh, by work, by self-effort, by tradition. We cannot enter God's presence by just being model citizens or or, or model quote-unquote Christians. Uh, We cannot enter His presence just by reading our Bible. It takes more than that. We cannot enter His presence by going to church. We cannot enter His presence by giving generously to the Lord's work, but by all means give generously to the Lord's work. Uh, We cannot enter His presence by thinking good thoughts about Him. Now, the only way we can enter in the God's presence, the only way we can participate in the new covenant is through the blood, is through the atoning death of Christ. Without shedding the blood is no remission, Hebrews 9, 22. God sets the rules. We don't set the rules. We don't get to make up a new way to heaven. We don't get to say, all oh, that doesn't mean that. We don't get to read in the scriptures what's not there. God has set the rules, and he said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel 18. 20, the soul that is saved, it shall have eternal life through the sacrifice of God's Son. But we know forgiveness is a very costly thing. Sometimes we take that forgiveness too lightly. I think many times we take that forgiveness too lightly, that great price that was paid for our forgiveness. Other times, I think, when we take the time to look more closely at the cost of our salvation and the great cost that was paid, we can become overwhelmed by that thought, and we and just start weeping at that thought if you take the time to really consider what I've done and then what he's done for me, what sin I laid on him and how he gladly paid that sin debt for me. That can get overwhelming at times. Now, God does not forgive sin just by looking down and saying, oh, it's all right. I love you so much. I'll just overlook that sin. It, it's just fine. No, God's righteousness and holiness will not allow him to overlook sin. Sin demands payment by death and by the shedding of blood, and the only death that was great enough to pay that sin, the only blood that was great enough to pay that sin debt for mankind was the death of God's perfect Son. God's great love for us will will not lead him to overlook our sin but has led him to provide a payment for our sin that his Son himself came down and paid for us. God cannot ignore our sin but he will forgive our sin if we just trust in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, his shed blood, his resurrection. What is trust in Christ? We can get that forgiveness. Um, nothing but the blood. I'm going to read part of that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus all through the blood. As I was preparing this message this week, those blood songs just kept going through my mind uh, as I was preparing it. Um, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. We need to live that faith life by the blood of Jesus. We need to uh, not abuse His grace, but live for Him and through His blood. We need to honor the sacrifice of His blood with the life that we live well. Lord thank you for this morning.